The Midrash tells us that Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel says, Lochibid Biria Esavos of Kamoni. No person treated his parents with the kind of respect that I treated my parents. Keep in mind, this is Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel. His father was Rabbi Gamaliel. But he says, Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel says, No human being treated his parents with anywhere near the respect that I treated my parents. And then I found out, Shikibid Esav Aviv Yosemimeni. Then I found out that Esav treated his father with even greater respect. Ketzad, how is this? Rameshim will explain. And I would serve my father as I put on dirty clothes. I put on a waiter's clothes because I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't be nervous about serving him, I wouldn't be nervous about getting my clothes stained. So I put on work clothing. And then when I finished serving my father food, I would take them off and put on my nice begadim. Esav did the exact opposite. His finest begadim he wore to serve his father. When he would go into the shuk, he would never wear them. It was only to serve his father. I see, saw from that that Esav treated his father with more respect than I. But I want you to understand what this message is saying. <clears throat> the Yifei Torah, one of the Farshim explains that Rameshim Galil studied all of the stories of Chazal. If you read the Gemara in Kedushin of Kibbet Av, you read about Atana who would, when his mother ripped the sand, he put his hand under her foot so she shouldn't, her foot shouldn't touch the sand. Another Atana <clears throat> would bend down on the bed so his mother wouldn't have to would be able to step down on his back. You see incredible amount of Kibbut Av. Rameshim Galil studied all of this and said, no human being came even close to me. But, the Medrash says later, I didn't reach one hundredth of Esav's Kibbut Av Ve'im. Now how did Rameshim Galil find out that Esav treated his father with such respect? So if we pay attention to this week's Parsha, we'll see an interesting thing. Yitzhak is already older, his eyes are weak. He calls Esav in and says, Esav, I want you to go into the field, take your bow, take your arrow, prepare, find an animal, prepare it, bring my tummy, prepare it the way I want, and then I'll eat and I'll be in good spirits. And at, at that point, I'll give you your bracha. Esav leaves and Rivka overheard this conversation. Rivka says to Yaakov, go get two gedim, go get two sheep, I'll prepare them and you'll bring them into your father, and you'll get the bracha. Yaakov says, how could I do that? <clears throat> I'm a smooth-handed person. Esav is hairy. There's no way it's going to happen. He'll f- will never fool my father. Rivka gives him an Eitzah. And then Rivka, Tatikach Rivka's big day Esav b'nah gadol ha-chamudos. Rivka took the son, her son Esav's begadim chamudos, the coveted clothing. And what were these coveted clothing? These clothing were the ones that Hashem made for Adam Arishon, and Nimrod got them, Esav got them from him, and those begadim he kept by his mother. Mativka Rivka Rivka took these begadim of Esav and gave them to Yaakov, and when Yaakov walked in, he had the Gedeizim, he had the sheep's hair on his arms, he wore the cloak of Esav, and he fooled Yaakov to give him the bracha. Rishim Galil said, when I read this, I realized how much smaller I was than Esav in Kibbut Avaim. He towered over me. But if you pay attention a little bit to the backstory, here's where things get very, very interesting. How did Esav exactly acquire these clothing? Now again, Hashem made them for Adam Rishon when Hashem sent Adam Rishon out of Gan Eden. But how did it get to Esav? So it happened to be that Noah was Yorishem. Noah got to be Rusha. Noah took these begadim onto the table with him, and Nimrod ended up owning them. Nimrod was a gibor tzayit, he was a great hunter, 
But the Mepharshim explained to us why and how it was that he was such a great hunter. These begodim were so unique, they had the images of various animals on it, and it looked so lifelike, so real, and animals would see their kind, they'd come up to them, to that, to that picture, and Nimrod would shoot them at close range, because these begodim had a certain appeal, a certain tremendous aura about them. And when Esau saw this, they became big day chamudas, he coveted them, he so desired them, and that what did he do? He killed Nimrod to get the Begadim. Esav got them from Nimrod via murdering Nimrod. But that's not just an illustration of who Esav was. If you'd like to understand who this man was, and let's just pay very careful attention to a little bit earlier in the Parsha. Vayigdulu Hanaorim. Yaakov and Esav come of age. They turned 15. And at that point, they were very, very distinct, and they head to different points. And at that point, something else had to happen. And that is that Avram Avinu could no longer be in the world. Hashem promised Avram that you'll live a life and you'll leave Beseva Tova with a good tidings. But at this point, when Asa was 15, he turned Latar Bezra. The Medrash tells us that day, when he turned 15, he lived with a married woman, he killed a person, he was kofar tchiyas amesim, kofar be'ikar, he denied Hashem, denied future, denied Olam Haba, all in one day when he turned 15. And Hashem said, how could I leave Avram Avinu around? Avram was supposed to live to 180, Avram Avinu only lived to 175, and because at that point, Esav was showing his true colors, Hashem took Avram five years earlier, so Avram shouldn't have to suffer having his, seeing his grandson go to Tarbizra, going off in this path. And when Esav comes back from the field, and Yaakov is preparing the Adoshim, it was because Avram Avinu had died. Avram was preparing, Yaakov was preparing these Adoshim for his father who was in Avelus. And Esav comes back from the Soda Ayef, tired, says Rashi, Ayef Miritzicha, from murder. So let's understand who this person was. There's no God, there's no world to come, He's Kovah B'Torah, Kovah Mitzvah, there's nothing. He's a murderer, he lives with married women, he traps married women all the time. So I have a very simple question. There's no Olam Haba, there's no Torah, there's no Mitzvahs. How is it possible that he shines in this Mitzvah, keep it out, to the extent that Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel says, I'm not one hundredth of Esav. Why do it? There's no Mitzvah, there's no God, there's no world to come. Why are you working so hard on this Mitzvah when there's no reward, there's no reason how is he doing this? Why is he doing this? And I believe that this question is fundamental to understanding the concept of Kibir Av and even for a bigger picture. And to understand that how it is that Esav shined in this mitzvah, let me share with you an interesting example. Imagine that you come home one day. I used to, t- I used to be a high school rebbe, so this worked very well for high school guys. I'd say to the guys, imagine you come to the dorm and on your bed is a box. It's wrapped, and you peel off the bow, and peel off the paper, you open it up, and you see it's a brand new iPhone. An iPhone 12, the newest model. Oh my goodness! You pick it up, and then there's a card. And you see, it's signed by your roommates, hey, we just wanted to get you something because we think you're a great guy. Could you imagine the joy you'd feel? The, the, oh my goodness, look what he bought me. It's a cr- Wow! Here's the point. You and I all had birthdays. We were all little kids once, and our mother, our father, bought us birthday presents. And I remember very vividly when I was 11 years old, and I desperately wanted 
that James Bond suitcase with that shot the missile, and my parents got it for me, and they hid it because it wasn't my birthday yet. And I searched the entire house, and I couldn't find it. And finally, my father came home from work, and I got that James Bond suitcase that shot the missile right out of the suitcase. Okay, but here's the point. All of us were once little kids. All of us had birthdays. All of us were given presents. All of us had mothers and fathers who loved us, who doted of us, who gave to us. But I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. A baby will learn to walk at 12 months, 24 months, even if you don't teach it. On its own, typically a baby will be able to learn how to walk, how to navigate, how to get around by about two years or so. But if you leave a baby in a room for a hundred years and don't teach it how to read, that baby will never know how to read. All of us read. How is that? Because my mother sat with me on the floor when I was a little kid and taught me, olive-based, ABC, read. Do you understand that 275 million children in this world do not read? UNICEF site, you go there, you'll see that in many third world countries, the idea of literacy is almost unheard of. That's not our world. And we live in a world where we were brought up by parents who loved us, who cared for us, who did so much for us. And if you'd like to know what that means in plain, simple language, because this is the uh, American culture, we have to put a dollar tag on it. And they say that the cost of raising a child today, now this is a uh, Department of Agriculture USDA study, and the cost of raising a child, let's say this is really in 2019, but the cost of raising a child is about $286,000. That means from birth till 18 years of age, the average American parents will spend $286,000 to bring up their child. But that's in the Gentile world. That doesn't include yeshiva tuition. It doesn't include day camp. It doesn't include bar mitzvah. It doesn't include seminary, college tuition. I did the math. If your yeshiva tuition is, let's say, fifteen to $20,000 a year, you got 12 years of that, that's between 180000 and 240000 You have day camp or sleepaway, that's 3000 a year, and times eight, that's 24000 Bar mitzvah is about 10000 Seminary, if you're a girl, it's 25000 College or yeshiva, you're talking close to between fifty and 100000 It is between 500000 and a million dollars that your parents, my parents, spent in those dollars in those days to bring us up. And I'd like to share with you one interesting observation. What does a parent ever expect back from the child? What does a parent want from the child? And there's only one thing. It's called nachas. I want the child to flourish. I want the child to come in his own. I want him to be the best he or she can be. And what the parent wants is nothing but the good of the child. If you ever want to see a totally one-sided relationship... All you have to do is look at the relationship of a parent to a child, and you see it's a relationship of giving, 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 giving. Now, ironically, it's very rare that the child feels that sense of being the recipient of that much good. And I'd like to share with you a mushal that the Chobos of Ava says. He says, imagine there are two boys, let's say about 15 years of age, and they're each living in this palatial manor, this beautiful mansion with butlers and maids, and these two brothers are having conversation. And one brother says to his other, you know, our father, he's so generous. Money for private tutors and special exercise. Whatever we want, he spends so much. It's, he's so generous, he's incredible. His other brother says, I don't know about that. The old man, I think he's looking to glorify himself by doing this. He wants kids who are good. I think, it's, I think he's in it for his own money. 
What's the difference between child one and child two? <clears throat> child one was brought up in the streets. He was adopted when he was eight years old. He knows what it means to suffer. When the man brought him into this beautiful mansion, he has a tremendous sense of appreciation because he knows what it's like to be without. And brother two, the ingrate, was brought up with a silver spoon in his mouth, always had this, never lacked, and therefore doesn't appreciate it. And I'd like to share with you one of the most ironic situations in life is when you have kids who are teenagers. And I believe if you ever want to know what it's like to be Hashem, all you have to do is bring up a teenager. Because you give and you give and you give and you give and you give, and what do you get back? If you're lucky, you don't get back lip, if you're lucky. But that unbridled sense of appreciation, an unbridled sense of, look what I've received, look how much has been given to me, just doesn't seem to be there. And again, I was a high school Rebbe, and I used to hock these guys, I used to tell them again and again, you know how to read, you know how to talk, you know how to be polite, you know how to manage, you know how to tie your shoes, because your parents gave this to you. The parents only want one thing. And I remember one time, after about 40 minutes of going on and on and on, it was a break, and one of the kids comes over to me and says, you know, Rebbe, I get it. Listen, it's true, my parents did for me, and et cetera, but, but listen, they have to, that's their job, their parents. Once they decide to have me, that's their job, they have to do it. Why do I owe them anything? I want to grab that kid by the shirt collar, because it's true that if you have a child, your responsibility is to do your best for the child, but the child is the recipient of untold amount of good. And yet it seems to be endemic of the human that we're just not appreciative. We rewrite history, and we forget it, and it's just out from our conscious mind. The Sefer Chinuch explains that Kibbut Av is humanistic. You don't need a mitzvah in the Torah. It's natural. If someone has done so much for me, someone has given so much for me, how could I not feel a sense of appreciation? How can I not feel a sense of what could I possibly do to pay back this person? And I believe that's the answer to Esav. Esav was as much of a rush as you could imagine. He was a gangster. But at the end of the day, he recognized what his parents did for him. He recognized his mother and his father sat there, did everything for him, and he had such an unbridled sense of appreciation. You see, Esav had an Ashama that was worthy to be up there amongst the Avos. And because he had such a pure Neshama, even though he went off the track and he became wicked, and there was still this pure sense of appreciation. Forget God, forget the Torah. How could I not do anything that I possibly can to pay back my parents? To the extent that his one begot, his most prized possession, and that begot that he killed Nimrod for, he would only wear it when he served his father. And I remember my Rebbe Roshiva Zatzal asked a very powerful question. If Rebbe Shem Gamaliel saw that Esav was greater than him, because Esav went in wearing these royal begodim, and Rameshimgul did the opposite, why didn't Rameshimgul change from that moment on? And why didn't Rameshimgul learn from Esau and say, my goodness, I should treat my father when I'm wearing royal clothing. I should wear my best. Why didn't he? And Rameshimgul Zetzal explained that Rameshimgul was afraid that what if he gets stains on his good clothing? He'll feel a sense, maybe he won't express it, but there'll be a tinge of anger, a tinge of being upset, and it might somehow be sensed by his father, it was too risky. But do you understand what this means? <laughs> what that means in plain language is, Esav didn't have that fear. Esav knew that if his father stained his clothes, it wouldn't bother him because I'm, I have the great privilege, the great honor of being mechabit, treating my father with respect. 
And if you'd like to know how real this respect was, when Yaakov, in fact, fooled Esav, and Yaakov took the Bechorah, took the Bracha, Esav found out, and he was furious, and he wanted to kill Yaakov. And he said these words, When will my father's Avelos come? When will my father leave this earth so I can kill my brother? Barashi explains he could not do it before. I can't cause my father the pain. Esav had a temper that's hard to imagine. And he hated Yaakov with a passion that's unimaginable. But nevertheless, he couldn't cause his father pain. And when you see this, what you see is the purity of a human heart. Even when it becomes corrupt, has a sense of appreciation, a sense of how can I not pay back, how can I not do whatever I can to serve those who have done good for me. And I think this is an important lesson to understand what we owe to others, a sense of appreciation, but I really think that there's a much bigger lesson here for us, and that is vis-a-vis a much bigger picture issue. And let's revisit this one certain situation. When you're the parent of a teenager, and imagine that they open their mouth, and they say what they really shouldn't say, and you ask yourself, what is this child thinking? Everything I've done, I've only done for the child. And even this that I'm doing now is only for the child. And not only doesn't the child appreciate it, there's absolutely no gratitude, absolutely no appreciation. My wife has a line, the reward for not killing your children when they're teenagers are grandchildren. And even though Baruch Shem, our kids are good, and they, as teenagers they weren't that bad, but I can tell you, it's a very, very rough stage. And would you like to understand what that stage teaches us? Do you ever wonder what it's like to be Hashem? you ever wonder what it's like to create an entire world, an entire world replete with wonders, replete with every imaginable gift, and you created the whole world for one reason, to give to man, to give man the opportunity to grow and accomplish, and to reach his greatness that he can in this world. This world is the gym. But even though this world has one purpose for me to grow and accomplish, there are so many features that Hashem put in this world strictly for us to enjoy. Even though this world only serves one purpose, to allow us to accomplish and grow, Hashem put in so many different things for us to enjoy our stay on this planet. And could you imagine what it's like to be the ultimate mate, the ultimate giver, and to give and to give and to give, and what do you get back? (laughs) What do you get back? Complaints, noise... If you exist, if people admit that you exist, why me, Hashem, why me, why, why, why? And if you'd like to know what it's like to be Hashem on some level, again, you just have to have teenage kids. And I'd like to share with you why I think this is a profound concept. The Chovaz says that the cornerstone, the motivation of all of our Avodah Hashem should be an unbridled sense of appreciation. How can I pay back Hashem? What could I possibly do? after so much that I've received. Now, here's the problem. I've learned through Nechavaz Lvovaz, it is an entire shower of Odas and time after time when I go through it, I don't know, it's a great idea, but it doesn't move me. I wish it would, and I try to work on it, and I do feel some sense of appreciation, I say brachal, but it doesn't move me. And it took me a long time to realize why. And to understand why, let me focus on something we spoke about a few weeks ago. Avram Avinu was the pillar of Chesed. He runs out to the Malachim, bows down full face in the sand, please don't pass, he runs in and prepares three cows to 
serves them each tongue, he stands over them like a waiter. Why was Avram Avinu doing this? And a few weeks ago explained, Avram Avinu was emulating Hashem. He was being like Hashem as much as he could be. What he experienced was Hashem constantly doing good, constantly doing chesed to everyone, including him. And what he was doing was being like Hashem. I'd like to share with you an interesting story. Rechet Hatzal told the story a number of years ago that a fellow comes to yeshiva and the fellow's learning for about a month there. And one day Rechet gets a call. It's a woman who calls up Rechet and says, you know, I sent this boy with a package. I asked him to, to give it to someone. He said okay. And uh, he didn't do it. I called him. He still doesn't do it. I called him again. He still didn't do it. Rabbi, please do something. The woman is waiting for the package. It's there in Israel, and the fellow won't deliver it. Please do something. So Richie calls his fellow into the office and says, tell me, you know, a woman called me about a package. The guy says, oh, yeah, I know. I feel terrible. You know, and just today, just today during afternoon Seder, I said to myself, oi, I, I forgot the package. So I said to my chavrus, you know, i, I got to stop learning because, you know, I, I feel bad because, it's, you know, I, I, this woman's waiting for the package. I didn't deliver it. My chavrus said, what do you mean? You're learning. The guy says, I, I feel, I, I don't feel like a nice guy. I just don't feel like a, a nice guy if I sit there learning and I keep the package from the woman. And Rusa said to me, where in the Torah does it say you have to be a nice guy? So I said, you're right. So we continued learning. Now, when Rabbi Che told the story over, he would scream in a screaming whisper, where in the Torah does it say you have to be a nice guy? That's the whole Torah. But do you know why you could serve Hashem in the sense of doing mitzvahs, learning Torah, and not ever realize a chesed is a huge part of your avodas Hashem? Because you don't relate to Hashem as the giver. You see, we say brachas a hundred times a day. Thank you Hashem, thank you Hashem, thank you Hashem. But that's lip service. I never really realized that I'm actually supposed to be appreciated. Hazan is a olam kula, I bench. Hashem, you give me food. And I know it will always be food for me. I know you'll always take care of me. But because I've never been hungry, I don't even know what the words mean. And the problem is that we go through the motions, we say words, but we don't experience them. And because we don't experience them, they don't mean anything. Many times a year we say this bracha, Shechiyanu v'kimanu v'giyanu lazmana Hashem, you kept us alive. V'kimanu, you kept us in existence, and you brought us to this occasion. It's another Rosh Hashanah, it's another Sukkot, it's another Pesach, and I'm still alive. I'm still alive, of course I'm alive. That's a given, of course I'm alive, I don't... I don't have to thank Hashem for that. Well, yeah, maybe not so fast. Today, I bench Gomel. I bench Gomel today. Why? Partly for Corona, but uh, I also, about two months ago, I had a hernia operation, and as I was uh, brought into the operating room, the anesthesiologist said to me, "Um, you know, we're going to put a breathing tube down your throat just to make sure you don't stop breathing and we're going to monitor your heart very carefully you don't have to worry about anything I said, oh, that's very reassuring fellow and when I woke up from anesthesia I realized something that that is a mighty dangerous situation you read the NIH National Institute of Health says that within one year of deep anesthesia 5% of patients will be dead most often not because of direct complications of the illness or the operation, but because of the effect of sedation. And 65 years and older, within one year, it's 10% are dead. And I realized something. I benched Gomel today. 
tovos. Hashem, you give over freely to those who are obligated, who, who don't deserve it, who deserve to be dead, you give them tovas, shegamalani kol tov, you do for me all good. Could you imagine if I really realized what that bracha means? Could you imagine if when I made a shahakol, I recognized that Hashem designed this, arranges and orchestrates the world so I can enjoy? I feel such a sense of appreciation, such a sense of gratitude all day, every day. Look what Hashem does to me, look what Hashem does to me. And because of that, I would feel a sense of what could I possibly do to serve Hashem? The problem is our heart is dead. And what we have to do is wake up. I think Esav is a very interesting study. Esav was no tzaddik, Esav was a Russia. But he had a human heart. And a human heart that receives and receives and receives feels, how could I not treat my parents with the ultimate respect? Rabbi Shem Gamliel, when he witnessed what Esav did, he was humbled. He said, who am I compared to that great man? That great man who serves his father with anything, his most expensive cloak, because he recognizes that which he received from his father. And again, there are a number of lessons for us. Number one, to remember that which we've received from our parents, from our wife, from our spouse, from our children, to recognize how much we are the recipients of good, to understand our relationship with our children when they become teenagers or whatever that stage is, but more than anything, to recognize our relationship to our our Creator. And we are the recipients of good all day, every day, the problem is we have to stop the busyness, stop the static, and recognize that Hashem actually runs the world. Recognize that Hashem does so much for us. When you do that, then there's an unbridled sense of appreciation. Hashem, how could I ever begin to pay you back one ten thousandth for that which you've done for me? And that propels you to serve Hashem properly. And at this point, I'd like to open the floor to questions. Please feel free to raise your hand if you're brave. Uh, if you're not so brave, you could just uh, type in the question. But you can ask questions on this topic. It can be on other topics. But please feel free to ask. Um, okay, Pinchas, you got the floor. Okay, hi. Hi, Shalom Aleichem. Shalom, how are you? Baruch Hashem, how are you? Good, good, good. So, the Can I interrupt? Is... Do you remember you asked me a question uh, 35, uh, 40 years ago? Let me think a minute. Close to 40 years ago. You asked me if you could daven mariv, if you could eat before davening mariv. Do you remember that question? Do you remember? I don't remember. You no. asked me. Okay, <laughs> I do. Okay, all right. I remember this question, but okay. Anyway, yes. Hi. So the question is that uh, if he he was such a rasha, so why was he so interested in the brachot? And the uh, next question is that uh, how did an Esav uh, come, grow up in the house of uh, Yitzchak Avinu? How did that happen in such a Russia? And another thing, uh, killing Nimrod was not such a bad thing. He was a Russia too, so... All right, but still, it doesn't, you know, you don't kill a guy for his leather jacket. You know, that makes you pretty, you know what I mean? It makes you pretty wicked, but okay. All right. Um, okay, so which question first? Okay, let me deal with that second one first because I think it's a very important one. There's a fundamental error that people make and that is they assume that if you do a really good job parenting a child and you bring them up in a really good environment, it's guaranteed that they're going to be good kids. And more than that, 
so many times when you see a kid who's got trouble, whether it be emotional problems or he's off the derrick, people say, oh, obviously the parents did something wrong. Now, it may be true. There may be times when the parents messed up, they blew it. But I'd like to share with you there are many, many times when the parents did nothing wrong. And many other kids in that very same house turned out beautiful. There is in the world something called Bechira free will. Hashem does not shackle a human being to any fate. Esav had Bechira. He could have been one of the others. He had a difficult test. He had a nature that was pretty rough. And because of that, he had to resist it. But he blew it. He turned the Tarbis rod, despite the fact that Rivka treated him with such love, despite the fact that Yitzchak treated him with such love, he turned because of this thing called free will. And guess what? When you see a kid off the derech, I don't know. Sometimes it's true the parents messed up. Maybe, but many times not. I've seen many, many situations where the parents did a great job. Nevertheless, there's a thing called free will. And guess what? You, you, you know, you can be brought up in Yitzchak Avino's house and still end up being our ace of. So that's... Um, that, to me, is, is a major, major point in our days because, you know, you see a lot of kids who, unfortunately, are suffering. Now, again, I'm not obviating responsibility for parents who mess up, but there are many times when it has nothing to do with the parents. And they did the best job either possible, the best job that could be done. Nevertheless, the child, you know, there's stuff. Um, okay, now, what, Marev. What about dominating Marev? If you didn't, if you didn't dominate Marev, can you eat supper? So the answer is, if you make a shliach, you can. I don't know why I didn't think of that. You came home from college, and you wanted to eat. You were very hungry, and but you didn't dominate Marev. So you asked me, can I, can I eat first and dominate? And I didn't know. I said, I don't think so. I apologize. You could have made a shliach. You could have made somebody to remind you, and you could have done it. So I apologize. 38 or 39 years late, but, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope you forgive me. All right. No problem. Okay. What about, yeah. what about the other question that the why was he so interested in the brachot if he did, he was I don't, a kofen? I don't think he was interested in the brachot. I think it was strictly jealousy because he gave up the brachot. He sold it. He sold it for for adoshim for lentils. He said, "What do I need this for?" Right? He didn't need it. He didn't want it. Um, it's um, I think more than anything it was jealousy, and it was just strictly the fact that there was a tremendous hatred that he. Listen, you have to understand something. Who is the worst anti-Semite? The worst anti-Semite is a Jew. Why? Because if a Jew goes off the derech, he knows that what he's doing is wrong. And he knows that that's what he should be doing. And anytime he sees a from Jew, it bothers him. Why? Because I know I should be doing that. I know that's the right way. And there's an inner, internal conflict, there's an inner turmoil, and he has to fight it. And the worst anti-Semites are Jews who went off the derech, or Jews who aren't from and because there's a sense within them that I should be doing that, I'm not, and they have to fight against it. Esav knew that he blew it. He knew that he was Esav of Russia, he certainly wasn't Yaakov at Tzadik, and I have to imagine it was an internal hatred just by that alone, but that was basically, he hated his brother, there was no question that he would do anything, it's just one little thing to trigger it, a little bit of kinna, even though he didn't want it, didn't need it, but it was enough to trigger the, but he really didn't even need the trigger, but it was enough to send him over the edge. Well, I also heard the third question that there was a problem that Chanuk Lanaya Pidako Esav was uh, if they had is that true? Is there such a thing that there is a Rav Hirsch? I see. I'm sorry, interrupt. I'm sorry. There is a Rav Hirsch who says that it's very, very. Um, it, there's no makar for it really. I mean, you can't argue Rav Hirsch is a great person, but you don't see it in the Rishonim, you don't see it in Achronim, you don't see it anywhere that it was. Uh, you know. 
I don't know. I don't. I don't know what to say. I don't. It doesn't appear that way. And I don't believe that uh, the reason. But uh, that's a very simple question. If in fact it's true, so why is Asaph accountable? Yitzchak made him a Russia. Yitzchak taught him bad things. Yitzchak brought him up the wrong way. So Yitzchak should be responsible. Asaph shouldn't be. And the answer is it's it's a it's uh, it's not really the, the essence of what's going on. And B, a person at the end of the day has free will. And a person can be a great Sadiq or a big Russia. Now, there are certain things you can do as a parent to help a child, and you should try. At the end of the day, a person is able to grow and accomplish. Asaf could have been one of the others. He chose poorly. As a result, he wasn't. But that's really... And, all right, Pimpsa, it's very good to hear from you. And uh, Okay, thank you. Okay, Okay, please feel free to raise your hand. You could ask on this topic or any other topic. Um, and uh, let me just lower this hand for a minute. Um, okay, did anyone type in? Um, okay, thank you so much. My parents are huge Rabbi Avigdor Miller fans and try to instill that in us too. The problem is that I'm much too much too much fascinated by technology than by rose or an orange. Okay, you're much more fascinated by technology than by a rose or an orange, right? Okay, so I did this in one of the shmuzim only because it's really fun. I want to I want to do this. <laughs> what is more advanced, a Tesla self-driving vehicle or a horse? Right? Now, anyone would tell you, come on, a horse that's that's eighteen hundred, seventeen hundred. That's like old style stuff, right? A Tesla self-driving. Come on, that's like about as modern as you get. Yet I'd like to share with you that there is no comparison in terms of the, the in, advancement of the systems. A horse is so much more... First of all, a horse is self... It's self-propelling, it's self-eating, and it has its own will, it goes. But the nature of the horse, the instincts of the horse, and the organs of the horse are so many times more sophisticated than a Tesla that you would be blown away if you open a science textbook and study one of the organs, one of the systems in a horse... And a horse is self-replicating. That means to say, could you imagine a man who invents a watch that the next day there are two watches, next day four watches, next day ten watches? No human being has ever invented a machine that's self-replicating. The horse is self-replicating. And the Tesla, as much as you want to say it drives itself, it's not self-locomotive. You program it. Someone tells it. It's programmed. The horse is self-locomotive. It goes on its own. But more than anything, the sophistication of the horse is so vastly more complex and so vastly more sophisticated than anything that man has ever invented or could ever dream of. The only difference is that's old news. A horse, horse, that's all. A Tesla, wow, that's new stuff. But all we're doing is we're falling for a little bit of the tinsel. If you want to understand the systems, you want to understand the complexity, you want to understand what's really going on, um, any human being for sure, but any living creature is infinitely more complex than any technology. The problem is you gotta you gotta look under the hood. You gotta look and see and beyond the surface and recognize the sophistication of everything. So I don't know if that helps, but uh, I find it very uh, very true. Um, okay, well here's a follow up question to that. Okay, good. Um, when I see nature, I'm like wow, but then move on. How do I work on that and see Hashem's hand in all that He created? Okay, so the answer is you have to take pictures. You have to take pictures, but not with your iPhone, not with a camera. 
and you have to take pictures with your eyes. I remember we went, to, quite a number of years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon, my wife, and I took pictures. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I mesmerized, I was, I was memorized, I was mesmerized by, but I memorized the scene, because I wanted to have that, because I knew that I'd be able to then conjure that up when I damaged my nursery, and for weeks afterwards, that's exactly what I did. Before I dominate, bring up that image in my mind, and it was phenomenal, just the, the awe-inspiring sight. You have to become a student of nature, and you have to constantly look at things and constantly take pictures in your mind, and the problem is, you have to constantly renew it. The Chovah Zavavah says, as an Eitzah, he says, find a Kiddush, find something novel in the Bria every day. Find something novel in nature every single day. And by the way, it's not too hard to do. If you have any difficulty, just go to National Geographic or go to BBC, Science Channel. You go to any of these sites and you'll see replete the wonders, untold wonders. Find one novel point in nature every day and you'll have an unending stream of material to motivate you, to inspire you. But you have to use it. You have to actually do that and utilize it. And then, then in fact, it becomes very, very, uh, very, very powerful. Okay, I'm Brooklyn's best Toastmaster... Shalom Aleichem, how are you? Yechem Shalom, how's okay. it going? Good, 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 Baruch Hashem. So you mentioned how Esav had this this level of gratitude that was unbelievable, and that's why he uh, he did all these things. But what about, why did he only feel that gratitude for his father? What about his mother, who probably did at least as much for him as Yitzchak did, why Why was it only for the father? So I don't think it was only for the father. I mean, it just happens to be, Shim Gamliel was mentioning that as Kibir Av. Um, I assume it was for his mother as well. Um, I don't assume he was a Kafi Tov at all. I assume it was the same. Again, this example was Kibir Av. Um, and that's how Shim Gamliel was coining it. And again, we had Ace of it, a sort of like a classic example, his most precious garments to serve his father. So... You know, it, it happens to spin that way. But again, I don't assume there's any difference between his father and his mother. And I'm sure he had uh, tremendous regard and respect and appreciation to his mother, maybe even more than he had to his father. Because mm. the pasuk you mentioned, he says, He says specifically, when my father dies, then I'm okay, I can kill Yaakov at that point. I mean, why did he care about his mother? We know that. Uh-huh. That's what? a good point. That's a good point. Why did he care, why did he care about his mother? That's a good point. That's a very good observation. That's a very good observation. And there is more, I mean, the Gemara says it's natural to have more fear of the father, more awe is the word, and more uh, love for the mother, because the mother is more gentle, the father is more of a, you know, the strength is stern. Um, and it could be that in that sense, he had more of a, you know, like an awe for his father, so he wouldn't trespass it. But um, again, I don't assume that there was a difference in, in terms of the regard, but it could be it manifested differently to the father, there's more awe, to the mother, there's more like love. Um, but anyway, it is a good point. It is a good observation you're making. Thank you. Okay. All right, good. Thank you. Okay, wait, wait. My Oh, I just dropped my... This is the not ready for prime time. There we go, I got it. Sorry, my mouse is acting funny. I apologize. Um, you're supposed to have somebody working the controls here. And not to have to do this yourself. I used to have Oshi do this. Okay, Avram Scheinberg, you got the floor. Hi. Hi, good evening, Rabbi. Good evening. Um, two two, two questions. questions. I knew. <laughs> and there's a follow-up 
after that, right? Um, okay. I guess I can build in the follow-up to one of the questions within the question, I guess. Okay. The first question is, um, well, I think Ray was in one of the Shmurs and was uh, explaining Rashi in this week's Parsha where it says that Avram had Yitzvah, Yitzvah was Avram's son, and that uh, Rashi explains how um, that whatever a person does in, to change himself affects the, the future generations. Yeah. So the first question is, the, whatever change a person does that which affects generations, is that before the child is born or after the child, or, or even after the child is born? And if it's, and if it's, and the follow-up to it is that if it's only, if it's before the child is born, why, why is the Torah waiting 40 years after Yitzchak is born to tell us this point? It should have been in last week's part show when Yitzchak was first born. Wait, let me answer the first question first, because the second question I'm not understanding. But, you know, that which we were discussing last week was the genetic composition, meaning when parents have a child, they contribute to the child. The three partners, Hashem, the father, and the mother. And that means whatever spiritual level the parents are at, at that moment, they give over to the child. So that's a, a, gen, that's a genetic gift, a, spiritually, a spiritual genetic gift, and that's based on the level of the, you know, the parent. By the way, the Rosh Chachma says when, when parents you know, decide to have a child, that time they should have as much purity as they possibly can and because what they, that act of having a child has a huge impact on the on the child himself, child herself. So it's it's a something that the parents put into the child into the spiritual genetic uh, composition. So I would say it's before born. Now after, obviously, and parents are mechanech and they help and guide. But that part that we were discussing was before the child is born. Um, the follow up question I didn't understand though. I, I, wasn't the Rashi in this week's parsha as opposed to last week's parsha? That that what Rashi? That what? That that, that Rashi that uh, that that talks about Avram having Yitzchak and Yitzchak was the son of Avram. Oh, holy! Because it looks meaning because you know Yitzchak looked like Avram because they they were making fun and they were making fun. It wasn't Sarah didn't uh, it was from Avimelech. It couldn't have been Avram. He was too old. So Avram holy did Yitzchak it, that it, it was clear. That Avram gave birth to Yitzhak because Yitzhak looked identical, but that means on the physical plane, not in the not in the what we discussed. That's he, they looked same face, just you know, clone like. Oh, okay, um, okay, that's that's okay. Okay, um, uh, and the follow, another, follow, follow. No, there's another, no, no, it's just another side question, not yeah. related to the partial. Um, I was wondering when I was uh, buying things for Shabbos this week, I was, I was thinking about the Gemara and the, the Chazal talk about. Uh, about buying things for Shabbos, getting paid back. Assuming I'm buying things within means of, uh, of what I could buy, but if I choose something that's a little bit on the cheaper side or a sale or something like that, am I ruining that uh, buying something for Shabbos, or I have to okay. um, pay normal price? So I, I told my wife a line many, many years ago, and I said to her, don't save God money. God's got lots and lots of money, lots and lots of money. You don't have to save Hashem money, meaning... And when you're buying for Shabbos, exactly as you said, as long as it's within your means, and you're given a, there's a flex account, meaning on Rosh Hashanah it's set how much money you're going to make this year, 50000 500000 whatever that dollar amount is set, except for the money you spend on Shabbos, Yontav, and your children's Torah education. That's a flex account. The more you spend, the more you get, less to spend, you less you get. As long as within your means, you're allowed to spend more, you get more back, spend less. Give. So if you're going to buy on sale for Shabbos, you're saving God money. But guess what? God's got lots and lots of money. You're just not going to get back more. So, like, if you, 
if you understand that the more, if you, within your means, if you spend more, you're going to get back. Why cheap out? Why not get the best? Why not? You know what I'm saying? Well, it, well the, the question would be is that assuming I'm not looking for the sale, I come to the uh, the can of tuna that I want to buy, and you know, one's a dollar and one's a dollar oh five, and I do I have to buy a dollar oh five one? No, you don't have to like, throw the money out, but you're not. You know, the point is that if you spend more, you'll get that back. You'll get more. If you don't spend more, you won't get more. Meaning. And what you spend on Shabbos, you'll get back. So if you spend a dollar, you get a dollar back. Spend a dollar five, you get a dollar five back. So it doesn't mean you have to dafka, spend more to get more back. You're not going to make money on it. It's just the point is that if you spend within your means, spend more, you'll get more back. Uh, okay. All right? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Shabbos. Shabbos, yes. Okay, good. Okay. Please feel free to raise your hands. Um, uh, okay. Um, okay, when trying to bring other Jews closer to Judaism, doing Kirov on friends and family, how can we do it properly without turning them off and bombarding them with information? Uh, so the answer is be like Avram Avinu, be genuinely nice, be genuinely kind. People are real, and people, and people, no one likes being Kirovd, no one likes being, you know, like being taken like a little of an Esrog, shaken, you know, meaning. If what you're doing is sharing because you care about this person, you want them to grow, you want them to account, you want them to recognize Hashem, you want so you're sharing information because you care about that person. By the way, Avram Avinu was Avram Avinu into Kirov? So I'll let you into a little secret. Avram Avinu was not into Kirov. He was into Chesed. He was into Chesed. Now the greatest Chesed you could do for a person is to gain them the world to come. So obviously he was concerned about that, very concerned, very focused on it. But it was because he was a mative. It wasn't because he was trying to, you know, inculcate his ideology into the world. Although, to some level, he was trying to bring the name of Hashem. But the point was, when he was speaking to a person, he was genuinely concerned for the good of that person. What is the best good for us? Well, I need to take care of your physical needs. I need to do what I can. But more than anything, if I could help you in your spiritual elements, that's the greatest favor I could do for you. Hence, he was focused on that as well. But again... I think more than anything, by being genuinely concerned for the good of others, and that is the greatest kirov. That is the greatest. Uh, it's the greatest kiddush Hashem. It's the most effective technique. And uh, and you're right. You can't bombard people because no one wants to be lectured to. No one wants to be spoken to. Um, um, okay, Pinchas has got a follow up. Okay, if I'm Christian living in a house of Yitzhak, Avinu bring up the level of bechira for Esav. Okay, so let me let me be very clear. There's no question that if you or I were brought up in the house of Yitzhak Avinu, I believe we'd be tzaddikim gemurim. I don't, I don't question for a minute. Esav had a very great Nisayan. Remember, when Rivka would pass the base of Adazar, Esav would try to get out. His nature was very, very difficult. Now, he had the potential to conquer that. He had the potential to be kovish that and thereby become one of the others, but he had a very, very rebellious, very, very strong nature. You ever meet a person like really big? I don't mean physically big, but like really, you know, you can't tell him anything. It's like a, he, Asaph had a very, very big personality and a very rebellious personality. So he, in the house of Yitzhak, unlike you or I, was not that much influenced by it because, hey, who said I got to listen to you? Why do I have to, why, why to listen to anybody? So the answer is yes. I believe you or I or maybe anybody else would have been greatly influenced. But Asav had free will, 
despite being in the house of Yitzhak, was able to choose either to be a tzaddik or go to Russia. And again, it um, you know he uh, he blew it big time and went off uh, went off the path there. Okay, please feel free to raise your hand. Grace Tzadik, Edward, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, as okay. usual. <laughs> Good. I'm a big believer in Hashem this day, so I feel comfortable. Excellent. Uh, first of all, I want to confirm your point that uh, uh, your parents and your kids are very different. Your, my parents was like same. They couldn't steal a dime from any, anybody. My mother was math mathematician. She teach ch- I mean, mathematics uh, kids in, here in Yeshiva. So, but I was using my mathematical skills in the bank for my personal game. Mm-hmm. She brought me to chess club, and I hassled people in the parks. When they came here, I go to the park, play for money, and uh-huh. make a lot of money. <laughs> chess in the bank. But my mother couldn't understand how can you do it, such a thing. And in the banking, I mean, I did some kind of sticks, uh, make a lot of money these days, blah, blah, blah. But my question is different. So I, I'm up to schmooze number 60. When you are saying tidal waves and midas hadin. Hadin, hadin, middle of judgment. Yeah, the, so, yeah. You're describing tsunami in Japan, uh, earthquake, bubonic plague, that uh, Hashem is not happy with us. So aren't you feel depressed that uh, my sin affect your sin? Because the uh, rabbis, uh, Isaac Luria said that Jews are like one organism. Like my sin affect your sin, and uh, these days, you know, all the prisons feel with abs- abstinence, wine stains, Bernie Madoff. So you do practically. Yeah, but I got I have a different spin on that. I also get to share in your mitzvahs, so I'm happy because I know you're doing so many mitzvahs. You're learning, and you're up to Shmuel sixty. So let's go. This is great. Let's go. Every time you make a brach, every time you, I I share in that also. So it is wonderful. It's a good deal. Yeah, but did a lot of uh, okay. I'm up to small six. I'm going to go continue to educate <laughs> right. myself. But, All right, uh, keep going. I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable anymore. I am sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're not doomed. You're not doomed. You're not doomed. There's other ones, good good ones, happy ones, happy ones after. All right, okay, <laughs> keep listening. Okay, good, good. Thanks. Okay, <laughs> please feel free to ask, uh, raise your hands, or you could type in the question if you are shy. Um, okay, does non-Jewish music hurt our neshama? If so, how, if does, how so? Is it something beyond we see, and is opera also? Okay, there's a few different questions there. Okay, um, let's talk about non-Jewish music. I do not believe that instrumental music has a deleterious effect on the neshama. I know there's some sources that maybe say it. It doesn't seem to be, uh, I don't believe it's true, meaning... Wagner was a very, very fine anti-Semite. I mean, he was right up there. He was really bad. I don't believe that if you listen to his music, it's going to have a bad effect on Yenushama because it's, it's beautiful music. It's composition. It's beautifully orchestrated. And there's no tumma in there. There's nothing impure in there. There's nothing that's going to damage you in any way. The problem with listening to non-Jewish music is the lyrics that become much, uh, you know... Uh, you know, especially in our day, you know, there, there's very little sanity left. In the 1960s, the human race went, at least Western society, went off the deep end. And, you know, back when I was a kid, they were talking about shooting cops and, uh, you know, the glory of cocaine. Now, I don't, it's so far gone. I, 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 I don't even know what, I can't even make heads or tails of what, what new devious diabolical things they're dis- so the point is the lyrics are the issue the music itself I do not believe is problematic 
lyrics are. But again, even if you take, let's say, pop music in, in the instrumentals, you know, you take rock music in instrumentals, uh, you know, some of the rock, maybe, at least in theory, heavy metal or something may have a, you know, it has a certain beat to it that's almost animalistic. But again, leaving that aside, if you had, you know, good music and it didn't have the lyrics being... Pro- By the way, you, a, a classic example, Simon and Garfunkel. I hate to date myself over here. If you listen to some of the lyrics, it's beautiful. Bridge over troubled water. It's It's... And written like poetry. And I'd like to share with you, I know guys have taken those nagunim and sung it to Adon Alam, Zemiros, and, and no one knew about it, no one knew the better, and it's beautiful. So, uh, you know, provided that, you know, I think that's really the key. Now, opera is a different issue. Opera is, is a problem for a man to listen to a woman singing. is a problem. Kol Isha Erva, the voice of a, a woman is provocative. A man's not allowed to listen. So that becomes a different issue. Uh, but in theory, if it's men singing or if a woman going to the opera, it would not be a problem. Uh, you know, but again, so I, I think that other than that issue, um, it wouldn't, uh, it would not be a problem. Okay. Um, okay. An anonymous attendee. How about Yanni? He puts a lot of emotion into his music. I happen to be very enamored with Yanni's music. I think it's, he's a phenomenal musician. I think it's beautiful. Um, I don't get to listen as much maybe as I as I would like to, but um, not, not that. But point is, it is magnificent. He is a magnificent, uh, you know, composer, uh, and he plays. Um, he also has a nice haircut. Um, we could discuss. I don't know if he does anymore. He used to have very very long, very very long hair. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, again, there it's all instrumentals. It's not, you know, he does have one or two songs, I think, with with lyrics, but it's almost almost all instrumentals, and I don't see anything wrong with it. Um, right. Um, okay. Uh, all right. Um, okay. Please feel free to raise your hand. Actually, it is getting late. I want to mention again, um, and before I forget, that there are the CDs are available. The the um, the Schmooze Clearance, we're trying to get rid of the CDs. They're all available for free. If you go to the Schmooze site, go, you'll see the Schmooze store. You'll see the CD set. And again, they're quite, they're very expansive. There's the Life 101, which is, it's 12 CDs on the first pair of Masulasharim. There's uh, Amuna in the Workplace. Many of these CD series, and they're all free. All I ask is they pay for the shipping. It's four ninety nine for the shipping. For the first set, the second CD set is two dollars. If you think you can use, make use of it, or if you think a friend of yours can make use of it, please go there. Uh, you can order as many as you feel. You can make use of. If you want to donate it to a shul or a gemach or someone you think could potentially use it, uh, please do so. I'm going to take one more question before we finish, and that's from a person not a tzaddikist. That I like. Okay, now we had grace at tzaddik. Now we have not a tzaddikist. Hi. Hello. Thank you, Rabbi, for taking my question. Sure. I actually have two. One uh, question is the following. Uh, last week you were talking about uh, uh, trying to figure out our own tafkid in life and uh, what we're supposed to do, and also um, related to Abraham Avino and, uh, and doing chesed. And uh, how does it work if uh, you have a full-time job, you work eight hours a day, you have uh, kids and uh, a home to take care of, and then you have uh, some close family members that, uh, for example, ask you for uh, to bake halot for Refua Shlema, which you would love to do, but at the same time, 
you cannot fit on your schedule and at the same time your parents give you a call asking to spend time you know with you or either on the phone or on the front of your door now with covid and basically you're asked to be you know to do more chesed with your time and you can only manage to do a full-time job kids and the housework that you already have on top of that are you is it bad to say no like how are you like Okay, so is the question bad to say no, or is the question a tough kid? Help me understand exactly. I don't know. It's like uh, I, I, I okay. feel like in the past I've said yes, and then you end up sleeping five hours a day, and that's not okay. good for you. Okay, all right, so let me start, let me start the following. Um, what was Sarah Imenu's tough kid? Her tough kid was to be the mother of Yitzhak. That's all, one kid? One kid, that's all, just one kid, that's it? One kid? The answer is yes, yes. And being a mother is a full-time job of one kid. We have more than one kid. So if you wonder what your tough kid is right now, I think it's being a mother. Now, in terms of that, if you have extra time that won't take away from your health or your kid's health, you should do chesed. But guess what? If you don't have extra time and doing things that beyond what you're capable of is going to cost either your health or your kids or your sanity, whatever it may be, there's a point we have to say, I would love to, but I cannot. Meaning there are boundaries, there are limits. We have certain limits. I can only work so long. I could only stay up so long. There are certain boundaries. I can't do more. And at that point, you have to recognize that that's not what Hashem wants you to do. Hashem doesn't want you to do more than you, you can do. And more than that, you're hurting your children, hurting your family. Because if you end up, listen, if you end up sleeping five hours a night and you get sick, guess what? You're not helping anybody. You're not helping yourself, not helping kids. So you have to recognize that there's limits. And and saying no doesn't mean I'm cruel. doesn't mean I'm hard-hearted. I cannot do. I would love to. I cannot do it. I wish I could, but I can't. So there's a polite way to say to your parents, "I'm, I'm sorry." I, I would I love to. to. I would love to, but I I can't. Okay. All right. Okay. And then can I ask you just a very yes. very, very small question Please. after that? Yeah. How are you like uh, if uh, if your parents, for example, when you do have time, let's say that your parents drop by to say hi in the front of your house now with COVID and they want to talk to you for a few minutes and it's uh, end up being a, a day when kind of like if your your parent is in a bad mood and just like being grumpy and just wants to vent on you uh, and you have to kind of balance trying to, to, you know, respect your parents, but at the same time, he's they're passing all these bad mood onto you and then you or your husband and your family and that's creating solemn issues. How are you supposed to react to a parent that it's, you know? That's a tough question. <laughs> that is a very, uh, yeah, 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 I, I, I hear. I mean, you have to be respectful to parents and you have to listen and and you gotta, you know, the question is, can you can you let it roll off your back? Can you not get sucked into it? In other words, can you you know, let me ask you a question. Let's say you were a therapist, and you were dealing with depressed people all day, right? Would you get depressed? I hope not, because I'm a therapist. My job here, listen, you're coming to me depressed. My job is to help you. I'm thinking, I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm hearing your take, and I'm trying to reframe it. I'm trying to direct you. So I'm not being sucked into your narrative. The opposite, I'm listening to find the opening so that I can bring you to a different point. So a therapist can listen to eight hours a day of depressed people and not get depressed because 
I understand my role. My role is to listen. If I can help, I help. If not, just even listening sometimes is helpful. Just being an ear. But I'm not in that narrative. That narrative is their story. And I'm here to offer support. If I can help reframe, great. If not, just being here. I think if you look at your role to your parents in that sense of you're there to offer one thing, an ear to listen to. If you could help a little bit by reframing, that's great. But you don't have to get pulled into the narrative. If you understand that you're offering your mother, your father, the greatest chesed by giving an ear, because people need to talk, people need to express, and you're there to help them by giving them an ear to listen to. But you don't have to get into the story. I don't have to buy the opposite. You're serving a great chesed. You're doing them a great favor by just being there with them. Now again, if you can reframe it, and help them turn it around a little bit, that's much better. But even not, just understanding that I'm listening to help, I, I think could help a lot. And you won't you don't have to get pulled into the into the muck and the mire, into the you know, the whirlpool going down. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, but at the same time basically you you're inviting them with uh, uh you know, having kids listen to that and a husband and uh, everybody has to kind of be on the same page and just you know Grandma, Grandpa, Sapta, Sava, or Sadie and Bobby have, like, a very, every time they come in, they just leave us with their older problems, <laughs> and they leave, you know, kind of like we, you become basically, what you're saying is to be open to becoming a recipient of their, like, just listening. And for you, again, for your kids, it's a different story, but for you listening, I think you should be able to, like, look at yourself as, I'm here to help my parent by, by lending an ear. I'm not really into the story. I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm like almost an observer, listening because by doing that, I'm giving them a place to vent. I'm giving them a place to get it off their chest, so it's it's helping them. What if you can't cope with that? What if you like you're not mentally <laughs> in such a great place to just absorb all that activity? Uh, uh, that's a problem. Do you exercise? <laughs> I, I I wish I had time. <laughs> so let me give you let me give you a practical piece of advice. Exercise. Number one, if you exercise, you'll have more time. You won't lose time by doing it, and you'll gain time. But B, your matzav ruach, your state of mind, you, you you'll find it changes you. You have energy. You have, you're a different human being. Uh, I I recommend ex, vigorous exercise at least three times a week. I think it has a tremendous tremendous. People don't believe me. But when they actually do it, it's a tremendous, tremendous, it's almost like a panacea. You know, they say in, the th- in psychology, the three legs for the stool, there's psychotherapy, which means like talk therapy, there's medication, and there's exercise. And studies show that they're e- equal in terms of the outcome. Each one, you know, has the same impact. So if you exercise regularly, three times a week, and it could be even just walking fast, certainly running's better, or getting on elliptical if you have a machine or something, if you do that three times a week, I think you'll have much more energy. It's not going to cost you time. You'll get more time out of it because you'll get much more done. And I think you'll have more of a you know ability to deal with things. So that's that's my on one foot cure all be all to, to this problem. We'd have to talk more privately if you want to discuss because I think it's a little complicated, a little too complex to deal with uh, you know in this in this setting. But if you can if you email me Rebbe R E B B E at the com, we could discuss it privately. Okay, I thank you all for listening. Okay, thank you. And I hope to see you. Um, I, again, the Shmooz, uh, the CDs are all available on the Shmooz site. Those that are less, some, some are sold out. It, you'll see sold out. And if they're not sold out, there's still some left. 
Again, the price on it is free. Zero dollars. All I ask is you pay for the shipping. Four ninety-five for one set. Each additional set is two dollars, and I don't even know if it covers the cost, by the way. But again, my objective is I'd like to get them out there, get something done. Um, and also, if you'd like to join the Shmooz WhatsApp group, four times a week we send out short inspirational videos. Just send a please subscribe to eight four five two one six nine three three zero. Again, that's eight four five two one six nine three three zero. I thank you very much for joining me. Have a good Shabbos.